0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Greetings from Vandalia. Uh, most of you guys know me, but my wife and I are the uh, site pastors at the New Day Vandalia. And so we are down there almost every Sunday, but every once in a while I love uh, coming up, coming back to the, the Nichols Church and uh, just being with you guys, worshiping with you guys and bringing a, a word. I, too, am excited about this series. Uh, you have heard it said we, I love the, the Sermon on the Mount and digging into how Jesus has invited us into discipleship. But before we jump into to that, I just want to ask you a question. Has anybody here ever joined a club or an organization? Maybe Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or some sort of... Yeah, and so when we join a club, many of us have done that, right? There's always rules. There's Requirements, right? There's something that is expected of us if we are going to be a part Maybe that's dues that we have to pay or there's attendance requirements, or there's responsibilities, right? There's all there's this list of requirements in order for us to be part of said organization. Well, I am currently trying to uh, get into the, the Kalamazoo Concert Band. I'm, I'm working, so I emailed, the, I emailed the, the director and I was like, Hey, I'm a trumpet player, just looking to see if there's any openings in, your, in, in, in the Kalamazoo Concert Band. I would love that. I played with you guys one summer a couple years ago. And now my schedule's kind of opening up, so is there anything? And he's like, no, there's not anything in the concert, in the concert band right now, uh, especially in the trumpet section. We've actually got too many trumpets. But I am also the director of the K College Band, and I'm thinking about opening that up to the community. And I'm going to call it the Academy Street Winds, and I want it to be a premier, woodwind on, or a premier wind ensemble in Kalamazoo. And I'm like, man, you've never heard me play before, so I'm not sure I'm premier level, but okay, what's the, what are the requirements? And he's like, simple, it's just uh, an hour and a half uh, Monday afternoons and an hour and a half Wednesday night. (laughs) I was like, oh man, okay, that's not exactly what I was hoping for. The Kalamazoo Concert Band meets once, right? But if I want to be part of the Academy Street wins, then I have to turn up for practice twice a week. Jeez, I have to practice my part. right? I have to turn up to the, the, uh, the concerts that they're having. right? There's these, this list of requirements if I want to be part of that. So I'm still kind of wrestling through that. I'm trying to convince Amber that it would be a great idea for me to add something to my calendar. <laughs> but there's these requirements, right? And we all understand that. And when we look at the Sermon on the Mount which Jesus preached here, and we have it recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, really this sermon answers the question, what are the expectations of disciples of Jesus? All right, I want to follow you, Jesus. You know, I know what it means to follow Moses, but what does it mean to follow you? And so Jesus lays it all out there. And the good news is on the other side of of following Jesus is abundant life, is, is fullness of, of life, it is joy, it is peace, it is hope in, in the promise of eternity with our Father. But the cost is high. According to Jesus, the cost is our entire life. And he very clearly, in the Gospels, says, are you willing to count the cost to follow me? And some people, as they're listening to Jesus, as he's preaching throughout Galilee and throughout Palestine there, they think that maybe Jesus has come to to get rid of the law. He talks like a crazy person sometimes, right? But he is very clear. He did not come to uh, get rid of the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He came to to show uh, an example of what the law really means and how we can experience this life that was promised in the law, yet somehow we all fall short of. And so Jesus is explaining, I didn't come to ab- abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he gathers his disciples around him, and he gives them these instructions. And so this is Matthew 5:19 and 20, just two verses before our actual text for today. I have to turn this on. That's going to help. Let's try it. So Jesus gathers his disciples together, he sits them down, and says, Therefore, anyone who sets one of the least of these commands and teaches uh, others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so Jesus is not getting rid of the commands. He's not saying it's not a big deal. My grace is so massive that you just do whatever you want. Forget the law. No, no, no. He says if you abandon the law, if you don't take these commandments to heart and you teach other people not to worry about it, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you practice them, if this becomes your way of life, if you follow the way of the cross then you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are probably like, okay, awesome, I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I want this life that you promised me. And so he continues on in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have read that, if you've been in the church for a while, maybe you've read that a hundred times, a thousand times, I have no idea. And so we just kind of go, okay, yeah, righteousness needs to surpass that, of the Pharisees and the teachers. But all of the disciples sitting around Jesus, their jaws would have dropped. What are you talking about? Our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the, the scribes. Right? They knew who these people were. They knew that the Pharisees were members of this movement that was devoted to the, the scrupulous observance of God's law. They believe that if if we can obey the law and if all of Israel can be really good at obeying the law, then God is going to look down, he's going to be pleased, he's going to send his Messiah, he's going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel back to our rightful place to be co-rulers and co-reigners with God on the earth and be a blessing to all the nations. And so they would look at the law, maybe they look at, uh, you know, uh, you make sure that you practice the Sabbath command, right? You know, take a day of rest. But the Pharisees would surround these commands of God with, like, with these rules and regulations. You know, you can walk a mile on, on the Sabbath, but you can't walk two miles. You can do this with your animals, but you can't do that with your animals. You can do this and not do that. And so they are trying to protect the law, right? So that nobody even comes close to breaking the law. So God will be pleased. He'll send the Messiah and restore Israel. They were really good at following the law. And then the teachers of the law, or the the scribes, these were professional uh, students and teachers of the law. These were lawyers. Their whole life was the law. So when Jesus says, you guys need to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes, God, that's crazy. Jesus, that is crazy. How can someone surpass their righteousness. And what we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout the Gospels, throughout the entirety of the, the Bible is that it's all about our hearts. Yeah, come on. Come on. It's all about our motivations. Right, we need hearts that love God. We need hearts that long to please Him. That are willing to lay everything else down and run after God with our whole uh, mind, spirit, soul and strength. All right, what, what Jesus is teaching here is that kingdom living, being a disciple, it all happens at the heart level. Yeah, come on. And then from whole, healthy hearts, right, right action is going to follow.: Yeah, come on. OK, that's great, but here is the problem and I imagine that some of you are kind of piecing this together, right? Is that our hearts aren't pure and our hearts aren't righteous. Well, this seems to be a problem then, Jesus. Right? Our hearts are broken. They are corrupt. And heart change is not something that we can do with some try-harder legalism. Right? That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to, to protect the law, and man, we could do even more than the law to pro- make sure that we're not breaking anything. Right. Right? And Jesus says, well, you've got to be way better than the Pharisees. And so we can't do it on our own. We can't just try harder. I've done it. I've tried it that way. And I can do pretty good for a good 10, 12 hours. <laughs> and then, then it gets kind of gross, right? This isn't something we can do. We can't change our own hearts. We can't legal ourselves into righteousness higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus calls us to in the entire Sermon on the Mount in these these six teachings uh, that we're going to look at through this series is not something that we can do. Great good news, friends. Yeah. <laughs> Six weeks of not being able to fulfill the law, right? Uh, right. But it is something that Holy Spirit does. Come on. It's not, it, it's something that the Holy Spirit can do. And it's something that the Holy Spirit wants to do. We live in this new covenant age that was promised in 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 the law, in the prophets, this age when we would get new hearts and the law would be written on our hearts and we would be empowered to fulfill what God has called us to do. We would have somebody, it's Jesus, die to sacrifice himself to set us free from sin and death. And that's where we are right now. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches that righteousness is not just about our right actions, but it's about right hearts. And it is not work that we just muster up and try harder. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're talking about murder. Murder. And I imagine that everybody came to church today going, oh, this is great, finally one that I've not done, <laughs> right? Uh, I've gotten through my entire life without murdering, uh, most of us probably. So, right, but let's see what Jesus has to say. I uh, do talked about that. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 21. in a, a moment but here we see uh, jesus equating murder and anger uh, and then talking about some of these words that we say and raka uh, is not a word that we're familiar with it's an aramaic word and i'm not quite sure why the niv translators decided to keep this aramaic word in here uh, but they did and it means empty uh, and in a derogatory sense, there's probably this word that people use to say, you know, empty-headed or or idiot, right? Or and then so Jesus is saying, anybody who says their brother or sister, you idiot, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of fire. And these words aren't like uncommon or particularly vulgar in this in this culture or in our culture, right? We even see Jesus call somebody foolish at the end of matthew's gospel in chapter 23 but what we see jesus talking about what the the author of of matthew is saying here is that these suggest they are coming from this attitude of anger this attitude of angry contempt right there this these This language and this hatred is is coming up from this place of of pride and arrogance and selfishness and and a thirst for revenge. Because it's pretty easy for us to to not murder normally, (laughs) right? But murder doesn't really it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like you're just walking down the street, right, and then you're like, "Ah, murder. Ah," Right? It's like murder. (laughs) Uh, so murder comes from this turmoil inside of us right it's this anger and this hatred and this pride and oftentimes fear that causes that brings about murder right and jesus is saying it's not just the act of murder that's a problem it's that inside it's that grossness that is swirling around inside of you we all know that uh, murder is wrong and that there are going to be consequences, right? You're going to get arrested and you're going to be taken to court and you're going to get sentenced, right? There is judgment when you commit murder. But what, but what Jesus says here is that while anger might not be able to be proven in court, that's probably much more challenging to, to prove anger in court, but Jesus, but God the Father, sees He sees what's going on in our heart. And just like the action of murder will bring about judgment, so will anger in your hearts. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh, Jesus, because I get angry a lot. How can you equate anger with murder. But Jesus doesn't pull back. He doesn't give any qualifiers. He doesn't give any examples of righteous anger. Nothing. It's just a one-to-one ratio. And we could spend some time arguing about, you know, is our anger good or is it bad anger? But Jesus' teaching here is incredibly clear. We must purge anger from our hearts as quickly and aggressively as as we keep ourselves from murder. We must purge anger from our hearts as quickly and aggressively as we keep ourselves from murder. And yes, there are places in the Bible that we could go and look for righteous anger. Jeremiah 6.11, Jeremiah 15.15, 15, and then Ephesians 4.26 all talk about this And Martin, uh, Martin Luther actually talks about this righteous anger. He calls it permissible anger. And he says that permissible anger is an anger of love, one that wishes no one any evil, one that is friendly to the person but hostile to the sin. Oh, that's good. That's good. Wow. But I'm willing to bet that as you're driving to work, and somebody cuts you off, it is not righteous anger. It is not permissible <laughs> anger that rises up inside you, right? You're mad because they're in your way. You know, I'm guessing that when you're angry with your boss, it's not because you are righteous and you, you, uh, right, you uh, don't wish him any evil, right? It's that this, he's holding you back, right? He's getting in your way. He doesn't understand how busy I am. He doesn't understand how hard my life is. When you're mad at your, your spouse or you're mad at your kids, it's most likely not righteous anger that is riling up inside of you. And a 21st theologian, John Stott, says, anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. That's why you're mad at the person that cuts you off. That's why you're mad at your boss. That's why you're mad at your husband or your wife. That's why you're mad at your kids. Because they're getting in the way of your expectations. They're getting in the way of what you thought your life or your day was going to look like. Because we often see ourselves as the center of the universe. Come on. It's all about me. Right? I'm the hardest working person, right? I am the, the, the most oppressed person there is. Man, you got you to gotta look at how hard I'm working. Give me a break. Get out of my way, other drivers. You know, I know these are the expectations, Mr. Boss, but look at how, look at this other stuff I've done, right? We, we are angry because people are getting in our way, or maybe we're fearful. We're scared of what we're going to lose, and so we get angry. And so the, the question that we need to wrestle with is where do we see this in our lives? Right? When, when we're preaching this message or any message, right, the idea is not just to transfer some knowledge so you know some things that Jesus taught, which is good, right? but it's not just about knowledge. Right. Right? But we want to step into obedience. Yeah. This, is what, this is what Jesus said this is what Jesus called his disciples to. And so, what does that mean for me? How does this affect me? And so, where is there anger in your life? There can be all sorts of people. That make us angry. There can be all sorts of situations that make us angry. But we need to look at it and go, God, what is going on? Anger is a is a secondary emotion. It arises out of something else, right? It arises out of uh, insecurity, selfishness, pride, and fear. Where are you angry? Where do you find yourself saying, Raka, Maybe out loud or just inside your heart. Could be with family. Could be with people in the church. Gross. Could be with people of the other political ideology than you. Could be people on a different socioeconomic spectrum than you're at. It's those crazy people that shop at Walmart. <laughs> All right. Are those highfalutin people shopping at Macy's or wherever? All right. We have these attitudes that we're angry at people and it just comes spilling out. You know, we can see it really easily on, on social media. But we have to go, alright, I'm angry. Why am I angry? What's scaring me? Where am I being selfish? Where have I stopped acting like Jesus, dying to myself, humbling myself? myself to death, even death on a cross. Because when we don't, uh, when we don't analyze our anger, we, uh, we justify it. That's right. We justify it. But Jesus, as we already saw in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five here, he gives us no qualifiers. He gives us no, nothing to, to hang our hat on. Well, it's, I'm angry because of this. He doesn't say, uh, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment unless that person hurt you on purpose. Then you can be angry. We don't get that. We have to forgive and release this anger. We're to follow in the way of Jesus. Because what we see Jesus do just a few chapters later is Jesus, while he's laying on the ground, while people are pounding spikes through his hands and through his feet, slamming a crown of thorns on, a, on his head, beating his back bloody, what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And that is what we're called to do. Not to justify our anger, but to forgive because we have been forgiven. And so when we discover anger in our hearts and we recognize it, right? It's not this thing that, that's like, all right, I'm done. I'm out. Look, I, I might as well have committed murder. I'm out. Shoot. Right now, when when we recognize this anger, this thing that Jesus is calling calling us to, to get rid of all anger in our hearts, when we find it, we bring it to the cross. We don't just try to deal with it on our own, but we bring it to Jesus. We lay it before him. And we practice forgiveness. We refuse to, to hold on to the poison of bitterness. And this is really hard. This is one of those messages that I'll, anytime I talk about forgiveness, I think, man, this preach is so good, right? It's such, it's, it sounds so good. But man, walking it out in the reality of our lives is so hard. There have been times, believe it or not, where Amber and I have not gotten along super great. Amber is my wife. We've we've had one or two moments in our marriage where things were difficult. <laughs> and it is really easy, right, to hold on to anger and to hold on to bitterness because what Amber's doing is getting in the way of how I expected our marriage to look. How I expected my life to be. And I I just want my rights. I I want my way. And to to forgive her, to to release her from these expectations, it feels like death. And it is. But what we see in, in the life of Jesus what we see in, the, in the, the way of the cross is that as we allow ourselves to be killed, as we lay down our lives for somebody else, while that may be painful in the moment, on the other side, we find life and joy. And it is so worth it. But we can't do it on our own. We need to bring that anger. We need to bring that bitterness to the cross and go, Jesus, I'm so mad right now. I'm so angry. I'm so angry. I wish that person was dead. And I can't seem to do anything about it. So I just bring it to you. Or even though there's nothing in me that wants to forgive this person, I'm just going to grin and bear it. And I'll just say, Jesus, forgive them. Jesus, forgive them. And I'm going to keep forgiving them until Jesus makes that forgiveness real in my heart. It's the only way to do it. Because otherwise we look at this discipleship in the kingdom and go, man, Jesus, I can pretty much handle not murdering, but I cannot deal with the anger. Because we cannot deal with our brokenness by ourselves, right? We need to seek first the kingdom, which Jesus talks about in uh, chapter 6 of of the Sermon on on the Mount. We need to seek first the the kingdom of, of God and then everything else will be taken care of. We seek God. We follow Jesus in the way of the cross. And then Jesus moves on, and he gives us two examples of what this actually looks like. What does this getting rid of our anger look like in the lives of Jesus' followers? And so he says in verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And so in this example, the situation is actually not about our own anger. Jesus kind of flips the the script a little bit, but this is about what steps we need to do to reconcile with other people who are angry with us. It's not enough just to deal with our own anger, which is super important. We need to get that under control. We need to bring that to Jesus and allow our hearts to be renewed and empowered through the Holy Spirit. But when we see that there's somebody else angry at us, we need to go and reconcile with them. And Jesus' illustration here is actually pretty surprising for, the, for Jewish people who were uh, practiced at coming to the temple to bring their offering. But sometimes we lose the weight of it in, in this kind of ancient text or this ancient language. But if, perhaps if it read something like this, right? If you're worshiping at church on Sunday morning, right? And, and, and James, where do you go? Wherever he is, he's crushing it, right? He's just crushing it. The, the presence of God is there, and it just feels so good to, to be there in the, in, the, in the presence of God, right? This, and all of a sudden, you remember, right, that, that somebody on the other side of town has something against you. Leave. Leave the church, go and find that person, and work it out. Then, and only then, can you come back to worship. Well, that seems pretty extreme, Jesus. Isn't it enough if I just kind of, in my heart, go, Jesus, I forgive that person, or I I hope that they forgive me, or whatever? Apparently not. Mm -hmm. Apparently, in the middle of worship... If you remember something, you leave. I don't, I don't hope that everybody doesn't leave all at the same time. That would be dis- disconcerting, right? But the point is that our priority is to take initiative and to pursue oh, come reconciliation. On. Come on, that's good. We want to be restored in harmony with people and Jesus here is talking about uh, a brother or sister and so somebody within the church right and so if they're not here on Sunday morning go and get get that thing worked out so that you can worship God this is a quote from Pastor Cameron he said you cannot really worship God if there is unresolved anger in your heart and broken relationships in your life That's pretty harsh Cameron His email is cameron at newdaycommunity.org. And so I didn't say it. I don't know. It seems intense. Right? But there's this call to restore relationships with our brothers and sisters. We want unity in the body of Christ. That is another sermon that we can't get into unity. But it's important. Trust me. Then Jesus continues on. Here's another example. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. Your enemy, your opponent who is taking you to court. This is not a brother and sister. This is not somebody in the church. He says, Settle matters while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." So it's not just our brothers and sisters. Even our enemies. We need to pursue reconciliation. And so in both situations, uh, what Jesus is teaching is pretty much the same, right? In both of them, somebody has a grievance against the person. And the basic lesson in both is that we need to immediately run after reconciliation. Immediately. Immediately. But we love to sit in our anger. I don't know why it feels good. Have you ever been angry and you get in your car and you're mad and some happy song comes on the radio and you're like no 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 no, not today and you switch it and you're like, are oh, like where's Metallica? I need something angry so that I can stay angry. All right enter Sandman help me help me to stay angry at my enemy. But we shouldn't do that. (laughs) Surprise. Don't do that. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26 that don't even let the sun set on your anger, but run after reconciliation. Because sitting in our anger with bitterness and fear and grossness in our hearts, that is what Jesus is telling us we need to get rid of. It doesn't matter what we look like on the outside. We can turn up on Sunday morning and we can look great. We got our Sunday best on. We got our smiles on. We're like family. For the next hour and 15 minutes, we're going to pretend that we get along. I'm not going to swear at you and you try not to back talk me. We're just going to, we can do it, right? Just an hour and 15 minutes. Right? But inside, there's this grossness and there's conflict between the spouses. There's anger between the kids, whatever's going on. But you would never know it from the outside. Jesus says to the Pharisees later on in the Gospel of Matthew, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Right? You look great on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones. And it doesn't matter how good the outside looks. If your inside is broken and corrupt. Come on, that's good. Bring that brokenness, bring that corruption to Jesus. Let him heal you. Let him restore your heart. Let him help you to throw off the old cloak, the old nature, this sin and divisiveness and grossness, and let him help you to put on the new man where there's freedom in life. So how do we respond to this? What do we do? It's a pretty heavy teaching from Jesus. But I think, I know, that Jesus is inviting us into freedom. Amen. This is not this heavy weight where we go out and we go home and go, man, I got nothing, right? Because we have the answer. It's Jesus. If Jesus doesn't work, we've got nothing. But Jesus doesn't work if we just kind of pay him lip service on Sunday morning. The cost of being a disciple is running to him. It is following the way of the cross. It is dying to ourselves. It is laying down our anger and our bitterness and our self-righteousness and our grasping for power and prestige and authority. It's laying that stuff down. It's being humble like Jesus did and saying, Jesus, will you come and transform my heart so I can live the way that you've called me to live. And so I encourage you this week, take 10 minutes. Take 10 minutes to to ask him to show you any anger or bitterness inside of you. Anything that's roiling around in your heart. And maybe that is going to be very hard. Man, is there anybody that I'm angry with? Or maybe you're just going to have name after name after name after name. Right? We all start somewhere. But write it down and ask, Holy Spirit, will you show me what is behind all this anger? Where am I trying to hold on to my rights? When in the kingdom, I've actually let go of all my rights. And then practice repenting. Father, I repent for however I have contributed to this this anger, this difficulty, this strained relationship. I forgive them for the way they have hurt me and wounded me. And then ask Holy Spirit, how am I to reconcile in this situation? How am I to to go to offer an olive branch? To offer forgiveness even when they don't deserve it? The kingdom of God is not just about conforming to the rules. Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is showing us what discipleship in his kingdom looks like. And as disciples of Jesus, when it comes to anger When we see it rising up, we must keep ourselves from that anger as quickly and aggressively as we keep ourselves from murder. All right, would you stand with me? I'm just going to close in prayer. Father God, we love you. And Lord, we just confess that we have broken hearts. Lord, we confess that we are angry sometimes. We confess that we might be angry right now. And we give that to you. Lord, help us to to walk this out. To practice the, the way of the cross. To let go of anger and bitterness so that we can experience fullness of life, so that we can bear witness of you through our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Lord, I pray for every person here, God, that you would empower and set free from any spirit of anger and bitterness. And we thank you that while we were your enemies, while we were shaking our fist in defiance against you, you loved us and you forgave us and you gave us new life and you've empowered us to do what you've called us to do. You've called us righteous in Jesus. May we bless you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. It was great to, to be here with you again. Uh, on my left, we have two teams. We have a prayer team who would love to bless you and pray for you, any, any needs you have whatsoever. We also have a, a rhema Team, these people uh, have been trained to to hear God's voice, to, to speak words of love and encouragement from the Father to you. So take advantage of those ministries. And with that, you are dismissed. There's snacks and coffee in the family room. Have a great Sunday.